Hello. <clears throat> I was nearly going to say good morning, but I mean good afternoon and welcome to Chewing It Over. As you will undoubtedly be aware if you've got your cameras on, I am not Jack Chew. I am in fact Jack March, rheumatology physio, and I am here today to cover this Chewing It Over as is the usual slot for me um, on these Tuesdays. And um, we're going to wait to make sure everything um, goes nice and live. It looks like we're nice and stable. If anybody is watching and has the ability to put something into the chat box, a little thumbs up or similar to say that you can hear and see me okay, then that would be amazing. It does look like my signal is nice and stable, so I'm hopefully going live and nice and clear and you can see and hear me in good definition. So, um, Oh, Michael, um, we've been chatting all day on text and uh, he's saying all stable, all good, which is unusual for me and my internet connection, but that's great. So, um, and hello, Alistair Beverly as well, uh, for all the big names dropping in to, uh, to listen to me today. So this uh, topic today has come around from, um, I read a study, which I can talk to you a little bit about in a second. Um, but also a couple of questions that I've been getting from social media more recently. And it's just, um, it was going to be a blog and um, actually I changed my mind. This was, this um, is is here now. And I thought, well, let's, let's talk about it in my voice rather than writing things down. And um, it just brought, brought a few things to the forefront of my mind that I just want to put out there and have um, everybody think about, I suppose. So, the study that um, I finally got around to read, it's been in my um, to read pile for a good period of time and we've come up for air after Therapy Live and I, I decided I'd get stuck into a few things. Um, and it is a study from America, so you do, we do have to take a few pinches of salt from it and how applicable it is in the UK. But basically it was a qualitative study discussing primary care physician perspectives on barriers to diagnosing axial spondyloarthritis. Um, and to cut a long story short, they, they voiced various barriers between um, difficulty with lengths of appointment, um, complexity of presentation, people often leaving things like back pain to the last um, thing that they might mention. Uh, but they also go on to talk about difficulties getting rheumatology referrals and um, a difficulty interpreting investigations. And I thought this is all well and good and this is all very interesting, but a few things that I wanted to sort of make make people aware of that I, I took from the study. Um, and this is based on a background of uh, me going and teaching a good good amount, or I like to think is a good amount, um, to physiotherapists, osteopaths, chiropractors, MSK clinicians, the occasional GP. And one thing I noticed within this study with the reports was it was all very much someone else's fault that the delay to diagnosis with axial spondyloarthritis. And we know that it's really long. So men, we're talking seven and a half years, women, 9.2 years on average. And it isn't really improving this delay to diagnosis and all the outcomes are much worse with this. But as I say, the, the responses within this study were all very much processed based problems or the patient leaving it to the last minute, not having enough time, um, referral based issues, uh, this kind of thing. And it, to me, it's, uh, it was very much there was a big elephant in the in the room with the responses as to understanding the presentations of um, spondyloarthritis and particularly axial spondyloarthritis and how those differ between 
um, different cohorts and how long people have had the disease and the complexity and the nuance of this diagnosis because it is a musculoskeletal masquerader. So we know that a huge chunk of people get back pain and a, fair, and a few of them are going to then actually have uh, an inflammatory cause to their back pain, axial spondyloarthritis. So it's it isn't the it's not an easy diagnosis to uh, to make or an easy um, differential diagnosis to include, but we need to be doing it because the, clearly the delayed diagnosis is is far far too long. Um, and if we don't have this insight to ourselves that we might be part of the problem, then we're always going to be missing a trick, in my opinion. And I think that the difficulty with these diagnoses is there is this big grey area. People. The most recent course, there was people saying there is no definitive test, is there? And there is no definitive test. You cannot rely on X-rays, blood tests, MRIs at all. It's mostly, especially as we talk about today in primary care, we're much strongly, much more strongly relying on our clinical, um, clinical suspicion, clinical intuition, whatever you want to want to call it. And it's really important that if we think that these patients have an inflammatory cause to their spinal pain, that we deal with them appropriately, regardless of um, whether a test comes back positive or negative. Obviously, if tests are coming back negative, it makes the condition less likely, but it certainly doesn't make it, uh, doesn't rule it out. Um, another study which I am yet to get to, but it's looking like if you've got axial spinal arthritis related to psoriatic arthritis, for example, then HLA-B27 positivity is much, much reduced comparative to axial spinal arthritis without it. So these tests, especially bloods and the imaging, very difficult to interpret. And of course, we have rheumatologists for a reason. They're specialists in taking those diet, those symptoms that someone presents with, particularly the inflammatory spectrum, and applying them to the background of the bloods, the imaging, etc. response to medications, and therefore coming up with the diagnosis, not this A plus B equals C situation. So I think there's got to be a lot of intrinsic um, thought patterns within ourselves as to how we're dealing with these patients and what our clinical process or clinical reasoning process is. This also then leads me on to something that I've had taken a bit of flack for in the past um, and it kind of rears its head every now and then. And this is this di understanding of this difference between men and women and how they present. Um, and there is clearly in the, in the literature a, a difference between how men and women present um, with spondyloarthritis. So we know that men predominantly present with a much more axial pattern um, of symptoms. So it's mostly the spine and the buttocks, and they get a, a much stronger inflammatory pattern uh, to their symptoms. So things like being worse in the morning, um, stiffness, uh, spinal stiffness is much more prevalent and, and uh, protracted, um, nocturnal pattern improvement with anti-inflammatories. Whereas women tend to present with either a much more diffuse pattern of pain or much more peripheral symptoms. So there is this difference between, between the presentations. And the thing that I've come under flack for is suggesting that axial spondyloarthritis is more common in men than it is in women. And if you read the literature, then that is true. Because what we're talking about is one subsection of spondyloarthritis. So axial spondyloarthritis is predominantly axial symptoms. And 
peripheral spondyloarthritis is predominantly peripheral symptoms and the women who present with spondyloarthritis much more readily fit into that category so when we say axial spondyloarthritis is, is more common in men what we're not saying is spondyloarthritis is more common in men and this is a really important distinction that i think is is becoming is becoming missed um and you know, there's conversations to be had about how um, the media, generally social media and, and clinicians, etc., present what axial spondyloarthritis is as a component of an umbrella diagnosis of spondyloarthritis in general. But as soon as we start to understand that differentiation, and then you go, well, okay, but women are still waiting two years longer than men to be diagnosed and yes that's the case because what's happening i think um, but this is reflected a bit in the literature as well is there's a decent understanding of axial spondyloarthritis patterns so you can see the inflammatory pattern to the back pain you ask specific questions i often liken it to corduroquina type um investigations so you, you in corduroquina you would ask specific questions which mean that if there are yeses or nos then you you raise up or down that clinical suspicion of having corduroquina syndrome same thing in rheumatology you would ask things about early morning spinal stiffness you would ask about a nocturnal pattern response to anti-inflammatories and this would differentiate it out to a degree from other types of back pain other types of back pain other presentations of back pain and that that's all well and good brilliant we can pick up these inflammatory patterns but if women are then presenting classically for a female without such a strong inflammatory pattern without obviously axial symptoms because their symptoms are more more diffuse uh, but also a lot more in the periphery as well and we don't uh, therefore understand the um the interplay of uh, peripheral spondyloarthritis pattern then it's easily missed within um, a pro certainly in a primary care setting, but all other settings as well, really. So it isn't sufficient to understand what inflammatory back pain presents like. That is one component of spondyloarthritis um, and one piece of information that you're going to use to uh, whether you're going to refer this patient onwards or not. We need to understand the interplay between peripheral symptoms such as tendinopathies and arthritis and nails um, and how nail bed changes um, can be predictive of having a spondyloarthritis. But we also need to understand that if you've got a female with chronic back pain, which isn't necessarily or persistent back pain, which isn't necessarily inflammatory, but she's got tendinopathy as well then that may well man be manifesting itself as one di disease. That might be one disease causing both symptoms because she is likely to present with a less inflammatory spinal pattern and more likely to present with a peripheral tendinopathy. Whereas if you had the male presenting to you who had a chronic, a persistent back pain, which wasn't inflammatory and a tendinopathy, then maybe you'd be a little less suspicious for the um, uh, the spondyloarthritis being the cause. And we also need to understand that women are much more likely to present with psoriasis than men, much more likely to present with Crohn's and colitis, or colitis than men are, whereas on the other side, men are more likely to present with, with uveitis. So it's about understanding the differences between those presentations and not applying a blanket approach. Now, obviously, this is really easy for me to say. This is what I spend most of my day doing. Uh, my second opinion patients are um very strongly weighted to uh a lot of females with uh, back pain and, and peripheral tendinopathy that's quite a 
quite a large proportion of my um, second opinion work. Um, but it's hard to do in primary care. How many, what percentage of patients are presenting in primary care musculoskeletal um, complaints, for example, with either back pain or tendinopathy or both? A huge proportion. And we've got to filter out those spondyloarthritis patients from that cohort. And it's not easy. And certainly in the study that I've mentioned, and I've put in the uh, in the comments below or in the in the description, the DOI, um, if you if you want to look it up and I'll I'll post it on my social media as well. Time is a limiting factor. I'm very lucky to work in private practice, second opinion. I can book as long as I want with a patient, essentially, but usually an hour. I've got time to go through all the nuance, all the details, understand the patterns, understand all those um, gray areas that it might be difficult to get into within 10 minutes. I've worked in I've worked in NHS departments where I've had 10 or 15 minutes with patients. It's really, really hard. Um, and I think it's very important that you understand quite quickly you're able to get into the quickly what are the patterns okay i see that there's this bit of a pattern this is back pain plus tendinopathy what am i then going to go on to do how am i going to deal with that oh it's if it's just back pain okay can i leave out some of those questions what have i got to prioritize or a female presenting with back pain and psoriasis how am I going to go pro progress through my questions to ensure that I'm not missing spondyloarthritis? And of course, of not missing other red flag pathologies as well, because we know we've got to go through all of that. So, so I'm certainly not saying it's easy, but certainly something's got to change and something's got to improve because these delays to diagnosis aren't coming down. So I think there's multiple factors which to be honest, in the study that we're that I'm talking about today, I don't think was entirely borne out with the responses that were provided. And it probably doesn't surprise me. People don't know what they don't know. But I think it's all about understanding, especially if you work in a first contact practitioner role, what are these conditions that are going to present to me like? Um, how am I going to manage those? And within the timeframes that I'm given with each patient, how am I going to go through these processes? And I think we have a responsibility as well to understand how we can make time savings. So on the front end, before a patient ever comes in, do I know the pathways? Do I know my local pathways with a patient with spinal pain? How do I get them to rheumatology if that's appropriate? How do I get them elsewhere? If someone comes in with peripheral symptoms, how do I get them into rheumatology most appropriately? And one of the things that did come out in this in this uh, qualitative research, which I suspect is similar in the UK, and especially these days at the moment with long waiting lists, there's certainly a lack of rheumatology staff, um, is patients going through other filters. How are you gonna get them through gatekeeping referral pathways? How are you gonna get them onto the right pathway as soon as you can without delaying their diagnosis? And we need to know that before that patient comes in. Otherwise, you know, if you have to spend some of your 10 minutes with the patient trying to work that out, or spend some of your time later with admin trying to work that out, it's going to be quite difficult. And unfortunately, it will vary geographically. So some rheumatology departments, it's much easier to get a patient in with spinal pain than it is in others. Some it goes through spinal clinics, some it goes through an MCATS clinic, varied different uh, processes. And we've also then got this difficulty with the investigations. So my default view is that we shouldn't in primary care be investigating spondyloarthritis patients in any way. 
I think we work off clinical suspicion. And when we're suspicious that patient might have a spondyloarthritis, we refer them into rheumatology and allow them to do all the appropriate workup. And there's a few various reasons for that. One, complexity, and two, those pathways that we mentioned. I don't want anybody seeing the referral going, well, that patient's got a negative ESR and CRP inflammatory markers, so they don't need to go to rheumatology. I don't want that happening. There's enough patients that will have the condition with negative results. The same with x-rays, the same with MRI. We need to get these patients in front of rheumatologists or specialist rheumatology staff. But then we've got this other compounding issue where some of the pathways require some of those investigations to have been done. So you might have had to have done a CRP and an ESR for that patient to even be allowed to go into that pathway, regardless of whether it's then going to be screened or not. And this makes life more, more difficult. What really then concerns me is, do we really understand the investigations we're ordering on this on these specific conditions. And this is one of the things that um, we go through on my course quite significantly is when we do these tests, how likely are they to be positive and negative? How likely in each condition it does vary? What genetic tests do we need to get? What imaging protocols do we need to get? If you're in primary care ordering a X-ray for spondyloarthritis, then it, you're wasting your time. That's absolutely inappropriate investigation to order. It's even worse in women. It absolutely, you should never x-ray um, a female for spondyloarthritis from primary care. It's an absolute waste of an investigation. So it's if we don't understand the different presentations, we don't understand the investigations, and we don't understand the interpretation of the investigations, we're obviously going to really struggle to appropriately differentially diagnose and refer on that patient, but add on the pathway difficulties and we're really going to struggle. So I think it's all about understanding yourself. What are my limitations? And I wrote a little bit of a blog on this last week you can find on my website. What are my limitations? What's the limitations of the pathway? What's the limitations of my role? What's the limitations of my knowledge? And of course, it's totally appropriate to not be a rheumatologist. That's not what you're there for. I don't work in first contact practitioner role. If you've sent someone into me with a vascular presentation, I wouldn't know what to do with them or how to do anything with them. It's an incredibly difficult role. Trying not to bite off more than you can chew is very um, is, is is very important. So do I need to upskill? Actually, am I seeing enough of these rheumatology patients or the pathway dictates that I need to upskill because I've got to do these blood results and I need to interpret them and then uh, translate them into a referral or, or not? Can I use my, my time elsewhere? Time is obviously finite. There are more specialties than rheumatology as much as I would like to ignore the rest of them. So I think it's really important that we understand where our skill set deficits lie, I suppose, in understanding what to, what's what's going on. Um, and from that point of view, I think this is where that's, this study is quite an interesting read, is these, how would you answer some of these questions? If, you know, someone came to you and said, what, what are the things that are making it difficult for you to refer rheumatology patients? I think you have to look intrinsically as well as extrinsic, outside, I can't say extrinsically, um, you have to look intrinsically as well as extrinsically to understand where these issues are and what's making there be an issue. Obviously, the pathway has no bearing on the fact if you are not considering that rheumatology might be a cause of the patient's symptoms.
So that's not that easy to do. Maybe it's something you need to do with a colleague. Maybe it's something you um, just need to have a think about, whatever it is, not sure. However you best reflect is probably, um, pr probably the way forward. But certainly I think from my point of view, what I see from the literature coming out, the patients that are referred to me for second opinion work, the comments that I see coming through to me on email, direct message, et cetera, et cetera, about what's happening with pathways, questions people ask me, is that there is a gap, knowledge gaps out there with regards to these rheumatology patients and what we do with them, how we assess them. And I think that that's not going to be isolated to these people that are messaging me, emailing me. Um, and I think we all need to look intrinsically. And certainly, like I say, if I was to go into first contact practitioner role, the first thing I'd be doing would be spending a lot of time looking at neurological presentations, vascular presentations, all these other presentations other than uh, probably traumatic as well, other than rheumatology as it's something that I've really doubled down on over time. I'd certainly be interested if anybody's got any comments in the chat bars for me about what uh, what they do or gaps they feel like they have in their knowledge or any pathway issues they come up against. Like I say, this study was done in the US, so there are issues with regards to insurance, which I've obviously ignored today. Um, we don't in the UK have to worry about whether the insurance is going to cover tests. Um, and if it was up to me and I was arguing about it, I would say that primary care, they probably shouldn't be doing these tests. Although in some cases these days with delays to diagnosis, sometimes it's worth it. Um, but you've got to know how to interpret them. It's not a case of going, it's not enough to go, okay, I know what investigations to order for spondoarthritis. That only gets you 20% of the way there. You then need to know about how to interpret them, the relative amounts of positive and negatives. So, it is something that I do feel quite strongly about. Um, it does progress across other rheumatology conditions as well. Similar problems with, with lupus and the ANA blood test and that rate of positivity is very difficult. Um, and rheumatoid arthritis and the various, various um, gray areas of overlap with regards to these conditions as well. It does make it very difficult, especially in primary care with these restricted amounts of time. Um, what are you going to do with this patient? How are you going to deal with them? How are you going to get them in front of the right clinician at the right time? So very, very challenging, certainly not saying it's easy. I'm hoping that um, I've given you some ideas to think about today that you might take away and have a little bit of a reflect on. What am I doing? Um, how can I improve? What would I be doing better for my patients? Um, and even if you do that and you go, actually, I'm doing pretty well, um, it is the pathways that are limiting, fine. Um, that's great, but is there something you can discuss with the local rheumatology department? How can you utilize the pathways better? So on and so forth. Of course, absolutely going to plug my website, rheumatology physio, rheumatology.physio, I should say. Um, plenty of resources on there to try and help you to understand bloods, imaging, different presentations of disease. Try and get something out onto that every week. Um, courses, booklets, all sorts of stuff on there for you to have a look at. Hopefully you find those useful. Otherwise, um, I am around on Tuesdays um, at some point during the month, usually the last Tuesday of the month. I'll come on here. I'm always happy to answer questions. Um, and if you just 
find me when I'm live and chuck me a question in the chat bar. I'm always happy to discuss about that. Um, and also, if anybody wants to email me um, or um, direct message me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, um, Instagram, and Facebook at, as Rheumatology Physio. Um, and if you want to email me, you can um, just email me at jack.march at choose health.co.uk and i'm happy to answer queries take second opinion appointments as well um, all that kind of stuff um but thank you for joining me this lunchtime and um hopefully let you get on with the rest of your day and enjoy that giving you something to think about do check out my website mr chu will be back tomorrow uh, with his live stream as per usual and um, i will see you in approximately a month on this live stream so uh, thank you all for tuning in and have a great rest of the day um, and if you're not used to chewing it over then you will know that you need to cover your ears when uh, the sign out music comes on because it is rather loud uh, but have a great rest of the day and i'll speak to you soon <laughs>